kick off with some prayer, and then uh, Pastor Jeffrey's going to teach tonight. And uh, this is not what you suppose. We're not nothing's broken that I know of, and so I think it's part of the part of the teaching tonight. I hope, <laughs> or we may have something going on. I don't know. Never know. All right, let's pray as we get started. Great to see everybody. Welcome to tonight's study. We're going to continue with the uh, In Christ I Am, and each week we're going to fill in the blank with a biblical reference of what, not just what, but who we are in Christ. This is such a critical piece, and I am so committed to this. This is the drum I'm beating for the rest of my life. I believe this is one of the most critical components to your growth, to your maturity, to your development, and to your peace of mind, where we are building not our self-confidence, not our self-esteem, but our Christ-esteem and our Christ-confidence. Amen? Because it's not about self, it's about Him. And so what's beautiful is when we maximize Him and humble ourselves, He exalts us and breathes life into us. So this is so important. So let's pray together as we get started. Great to see everybody. I want to encourage you to continue to do check our Facebook page. Check our we've, We're putting lots of things online. Also, our, our ministry of the week, our pastor of the week, the church of the week that we're praying for, we're putting that online. So do keep your eyes on that. We're also doing a lot of work on our website right now. And uh, we're revamping calendar page, all that stuff. We're just diving in, diving in, diving in. So uh, just trying to clarify, simplify, get everything where it needs to be. So keep looking, keep watching, and keep your eyes out. We're actually putting the, the bulletin announcements are now on the website. So you'll already have the, the announcements for the coming week. All you do is click on bulletin, weekly bulletin at the top of the website. And it'll take you right to the bulletin that we're going to hand out to you the next week. That way you've got exactly what's coming. So we're just trying to clarify that so there'll be no gaps in our communication. Amen? All right, let's get started. Father, in the name of Jesus, we are so encouraged and so blessed to be sons and daughters, to be family. And as family, we're gathered here tonight to dive into your word. Lord, I'm asking you to open our eyes that we may see our ears that we may hear, and our hearts that we may know truth, the truth that sets us free. Lord, I thank you for this this critical component of identity. Thank you that when we know who we are, we will know what to do. We'll know the next step as that is clarified in our lives. So, Lord, I'm asking you to raise up a an army of folks who know who they are in Jesus Christ knowing that no matter how hard the winds of life blow, no matter how hard things come, they may be bent, but they will never be broken because they know who and whose they are. So I speak life over our church family. I speak encouragement. And, Father, I lift up Pastor Jeffrey as he speaks tonight and teaches. Anoint him, Lord. Father, we're we're posturing ourselves as disciples to hear, to listen, to receive, to learn, to apply, and to grow. That's our heart, and we honor you in this. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. All right, welcome, Pastor Jeffrey. Honored to be able to uh, share this time with uh, Jimmy as we kind of tag team this new series uh, on identity, these I am statements, and uh, Jimmy and I are, are pretty different, aren't we? Um, um, you know, I always say that Jimmy probably runs on jet fuel. I'm kind of a low-octane kind of guy. Uh, he's got guitars hanging on his wall. I've got deer heads hanging on mine. Uh, but you know what Jimmy and I share in common is definitely a passion for God and His Word and for mobilizing His people to really get into this book and to let this book get all over you. So if you have your Bibles out there tonight, I want you to raise them high. All right. We are going to do some study tonight in His Word. And I hope that you are getting a good grip on God's Word. Uh, One of the things Jimmy says a lot is, um, you know, if you want the Word to work, you got to what? Work the Word, right? So I want to give you a little illustration, the one I gave you last week, the last time I was with you, uh, about getting a grip on God's Word. So if I hear the Word of God and I read the Word of God, I can grip the Word, can't I? I? I've got a fairly good hold on it, but you know what? It's kind of loose. And if somebody were to come along, they might just knock it out of my hands. So hearing and reading isn't enough, is it? You've got to hear the Word of God. You've got to read it. And then you've got to study it. You've got to apply yourself. 
uh, you've got to dig in, dig deep, uh, spend some time in the Word, and then you want to meditate upon it. You don't want it to just be studying it for the sake of, oh, well, I've got that verse or that passage in my head. You've got to get it into your heart, right? And so there's why you want to meditate on the Word of God. Then after meditation, we talked about memorization. So you hear the Word of God, you read it, you study it, you meditate upon it, and then you memorize it. You commit certain verses to memory, all right? We don't do enough of this as we should, but it's really valuable. Why do you want to memorize? What's the advantage? Yeah, it's always with you. It's on the tip of your tongue. And you may not get every little word right, and that's okay. That's not the point. The point is you get the heart of it, right? You get it into you, into your heart, and what's in your heart comes out of your mouth, right? And so that's what Jesus taught us. So you want to memorize it, and you want to commit it to memory because that's the easiest way to, to share it. So hear the Word of God, read the Word of God, study it, me, uh, me, meditate on it, and memorize it. Now I've got a really good grip. Everybody grip your Bible like that. That's good, isn't it? You can wave that thing around, somebody can come and get you, and you, you're going to hold on to that. Well, we're not going to stop there with the grip. You're going to apply what you're learning, right? You're going to apply what you're meditating, what you're memorizing. So by putting it into the palm of my hand, now I've got an incredible grip on the Word of God, right? Everybody get that? So go through, and then the, go through these steps with me, starting from the top. Hear it, read it, study it, meditate on it, memorize it, apply it, and what's our last one? Share it. Give it away. God never intended for you to keep this to yourself. You've got to give it away. So anyway, that's the way I like to uh, remember how to apply uh, the Word of God, how to get a good grip on it so that I can share it with other people. And I hope that'll just be a simple illustration that you can remember, but not just to remember, but teach other people. You are a disciple maker. You are a disciple of Jesus, and your commission is to go and make disciples of others. So there's just one little uh, way in which you can do that. So um, what I would like to begin with tonight is to just review a little bit of what I talked about in my first lesson uh, under the series of I Am Dearly Loved. And I, I was trying to establish as we began together talking about identity just how important this piece is. Like Jimmy said earlier, there's nothing more important to your, your understanding of who God is and your understanding of, of why you are here and who you are than this piece of identity. So it's super, super important. Uh, when we were together a couple of weeks ago, we looked at some passages about where our identity comes from. And we talked, and we first, remember, we looked at Jesus and uh, the places where God actually spoke verbally from heaven, where his voice was heard on earth, and there were three places in the New Testament where that happened. It was where? Baptism. Baptism. Second one was on the Mount of Transfiguration, and the third one was just before the Passover feast. John 12, 28. Very good. So those are the three places where God is speaking verbally, and each of those times he's affirming and saying, this Jesus, this carpenter, this man of Nazareth that you all know, he's not just any ordinary man. In fact, he is the Son of God. He's my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And he, and he ad, ad, admissions us to listen to Him, to follow Him. And so three times God affirms the identity of Jesus as being His one and only unique Son. Now, why is that so important? Because everything hinges on the identity of Jesus in Scripture. The Gospels all proclaim that Jesus was the Son of God, the miracles prove that he was the son of God, including the resurrection from the dead, his final miracle. And then also the basis of our faith as Christians is based on what? It's based on the identity of Jesus. When you come to him and you uh, confess his name, you're confessing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the Christ, but he is also the son of God. So that becomes really important for us. And then by understanding his identity, then we understand our identity, don't we? Because we're his followers. We're, made, we're, we're created uh, to follow him and to walk in him. Um, and so that becomes really important. We also looked at that time where Jesus was tested in the wilderness. And again, Satan went after his what? 
his identity and all of those different types of temptations and times of testing it was all an attack on his identity why because that was the biggest threat because if jesus is clearly the son of god satan doesn't have a chance does he and he didn't because jesus wouldn't budge on that he would not budge on who god said he was and every time that he was tempted or tested by satan to take another path he said no way not going there and he retained his identity he didn't compromise his identity when things got tough and angels came and attended him and the holy spirit just filled him and and he went out from that place doing incredible ministry didn't he he just immediately got after it teaching doing miracles uh, calling the disciples and uh, fulfilling the will of god so as we say around here a lot when you know your identity you'll know what to do right because our purpose comes from understanding who we are, understanding who we've been created to, to, to be like. So our purpose comes out of our identity. Out of that then flows our unique calling, our assignments. So I'll know the specific things of what I am to do. There's a general will, kind of like your grand purpose in life, and that would be what as Christians? Our ultimate goal is to glorify God, correct? With everything that we do in word and in deed to glorify God. And then how is that going to be lived out for me? What's my lane, my ministry assignment that I'm going to run in? That becomes the unique aspect of that. So all of those, just kind of as a big review, uh, that's where we gain our identity from. We gain our identity from Jesus as his followers, doing his ministry, doing what the Father says, what the Father does. That's, that's what we're about. Tonight, I wanted to throw another uh, piece on here about identity before we jump into the topic for the evening, which is I am chosen. And I wanted to talk about how we lose our identity. You think that's important? Yeah, it happens all the time, doesn't it? And perhaps it's happened in your life a number of times or uh, maybe one time, uh, but it's easy to lose ourselves. It's easy to lose our identity. I've never really taught this passage uh, on this angle of, of a loss of identity. But when I was doing some Bible study, the Lord really showed me that maybe there's a connection here with this passage. And so I'm going to use you guys as guinea pigs tonight, if that's okay. Uh, we're going to look at Romans chapter 1 together, all right? So grab your Bibles and open them up to Romans chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 32. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. This is a, in a section where God will give a culture over to its own sinful desires and the resulting judgment that comes from that. Now, you know, if I had to choose one of the 66 books, if I could only have one, you know, we've got 66 right here in this book we call the Bible, but if I could only have one of these, I would want the book of Romans because it's so rich, isn't it? And if I could only have one chapter in all the Bible, I'd probably choose chapter 3. And if I could only have one verse, it would probably be, very, be verse 21 in the Bible because here we learn about that there is this righteousness of God that is revealed and it's available to us on the basis of faith, right? So let's look at Romans a little bit. We know that it was written by the Apostle Paul uh, probably when he was in the um, city of Corinth. Yeah, somewhere between 56, 58 A.D., probably. And as the gospel was spreading out into the Gentile world, uh, so did the challenges uh, arise with communicating the gospel of good news about Jesus to those uh, who were coming to Christ. And so the big message, of course, in Romans is that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not something that we do of our own we don't bring about salvation by our own works but it's rather by the grace of god that we are able to access this through jesus christ so paul is going to make a point um, that in the first few chapters before we get to chapter 3 verse 21 which we're not going to go there tonight but if we were going there he's going to make the case in chapter 1 that that for for the pagan person you can't say that, that God didn't make himself known. You can't say that God didn't reveal his will for man. And, and Paul's going to establish the fact that there is no one 
without excuse. And so to the Gentile audience that he is writing to, this would be very powerful to them. This would really jump out at them. Uh, and then in chapter 2, in the first part of chapter 3, he'll talk to the, to the person that's looking to the law, uh, any kind of law system to save them. He'll also look to uh, the Jewish system and the law of Moses and saying how that can't save you. And he'll say that, they're, uh, that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory um, So therefore, the need for the righteousness that, that comes from God. There's no one righteous. So let's look in verse 18 and following of Romans chapter 1. And again, we're looking at this uh, to kind of see about what I would say is a loss of identity. And we'll just see how this, this goes, all right? You know, we're going to just dive into this section and see what God has to share with us tonight. So begin reading with me in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became as fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed uh, shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil, and they disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. That's kind of a heavy passage, isn't it? <laughs> you don't get to the end of this and go, wow, <laughs> that's good news. Because this is, this is when God basically, I, I won't say he gives up on a culture or he gives up on a person, but this is when God gives over a person or God gives over a culture. Now, why would God be motivated to do that? Is it because he doesn't like them? He loves them. Loves them immensely so much that he's willing to say it like it is. He's willing to, how does verse 18 begin? What's being revealed from heaven? Wrath. Wrath is being revealed from heaven because of all the wickedness that's going on. So God's going to say that, hey, if you're willing to go down that path, if that's what you choose, then guess what? I've got something for you. Because I care enough about you that I'm going to judge that. I'm going to do what is right because that is, what, that is who I am. God is righteous. He is holy. He is just in all of his ways. No man can ever accuse God for not being a just God. He is just, always. He, he's so just, he, we deserve to be condemned to a million hells, and God's character would not change. 
he would still be a just and a holy and a righteous God. So God cares enough about us to punish us. He cares enough about us to let the consequences of our own rebellion and sin bear themselves out, even in our physical bodies and in our spiritual and emotional lives as well. Is that true? So I want you to see this passage not so much as like God really throwing it down here and like condemning them and saying, you guys are all going to hell in a handbasket, but really God is doing everything that he can in order to redeem them, to lift them back up. And in order to do that, he's got to give them over. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes. Yes. Yes, that's right. Right. Yes. Right, exactly. The justice of God demanded that man's sin be paid for, and the only way that that could be paid for is to take his son who was innocent And for his son to willingly, not for God to take it from him, he said, no man takes my life from me, but I willingly lay it down. Because of the love that he had for you and I? No. The love that Jesus had for his father in heaven. That was what was motivating him, driving him to that obedience on the cross. But you're right. That's a good point. God has to judge the sin, but he's doing everything that he can to redeem the sinner. That's the big message I want you to get out of uh, this passage here Romans chapter 1 but let's just kind of go through here and unpack it just a little bit because it is really a rich text all right you good with that I like you know diving into text and stuff and I hope you do too and I'm glad you have your Bibles there if you're taking notes or whatever please do that as well write some stuff down Uh, if you want I can start making some uh, paper copies or something like that to give you as well if you'd like some study sheets just let me know So again, notice in verse 18 of chapter 1, it says the wrath of God is being revealed. I thought that was very interesting, that statement, wrath is being revealed, because if you go to my favorite verse in Romans, which is which verse? 321, there you go. There's something else being revealed. It's the righteousness of God is being revealed. And so I kind of see this as like a, you know, a point (laughs) that the apostle is making here. Uh, Paul was a, a masterful teacher and writer. And he's saying that the wrath of God is presently being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. So God is going to do what's right. He is going to judge sin. He judged it in in ancient times, all the way from Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel, um, Noah. uh, You just go all through the Old Testament. God always, always, always judged sin, even up until through, through Christ. And even today, God hasn't changed. He's still unleashing wrath from heaven against wickedness and godlessness. Now, it says that these people who are practicing this, what, what are they trying to do with their wickedness? What does it say in verse 18? Mine, I'm reading from the NIV, but maybe you have a different version. Okay, suppress it. So that gives you the idea of they're not just like necessarily flaunting it. Uh, they're not necessarily denying that it exists but they're just trying to what cover it up and that's what shame does to you doesn't it it just makes you want to cover things up pretend it's not there make it go away and so their idea to get rid of this wickedness is just to like suppress it maybe if i just push it push it push it push it push it way down and uh and then i'll be off the hook i'll be clear i'll have a good conscience i can go to sleep at night have you ever tried to take a beach ball that's the the idea here of suppressing the truth have you ever taken a beach ball that's pretty well aired up and tried to hold it under the water it provides a lot of resistance doesn't it you got to really you know force it to go down into the water and if you're not careful it'll do what it'll just pop right up on you i mean you might hold it down for a little bit but you're not going to hold it down all day eventually that thing is going to burst out and pop up with a lot of force and that's the idea here they were trying to suppress the truth of God, but you can't do that. You, can't, you may do it for a time, but you won't do it always. 
Verse 19 says, since what may be known about God is plain to them. So if, 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 if he's trying to like show them that they're without excuse or that God has been just, he has been, that, that the truth is clear to them, look how many times it says that they knew, they knew, they knew, they knew, they knew. All right, just in two, three verses here. Verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God made it, say it, plain to them. For since the creation of the world, even since the very beginning, even before the law of Moses, even before the Bible is actually penned, before the prophets speak, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So God designed creation so that man might be not just accountable, but so that man might know him and seek him. Isn't that right? I mean, when, when you step outside or you go to a really beautiful place and it just takes your breath away, what do you think of? You think of, yeah, you think, how, how could this be? How, how could this beauty exist? I, I put my feet on the edge of the Grand Canyon, you know, and I look at all that vast beauty or I, I cast my, my head back and I look up into the stars at night, and I see the millions of stars that are in the sky and think about all the different systems and the universe and how expansive it is, and it makes me go, wow, God exists. Someone had to create this, and it's not just that we know that there's a creator, but we know something about him. We know something about his, his power, but we also know something about his nature. And so Paul will say, because of this, because it has been clearly seen because it is possible to reason and understand that there is a God with these qualities. People are without excuse to seek him, to know him. And so this truth of God is there. And it's man's attempt that just tries to suppress that. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yes, this is here, I believe. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No. That's right. It, it was in their day and it's in our day today. Exactly. It is being revealed on and on and on and on. So, and then look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. So it seems like our purpose is what? Our ultimate purpose is to know God, right? And because of knowing God, we should, what? Glorify Him, give Him praise, give Him thanks. That's what God calls each and every person to do, but they don't want to do that because of the wickedness and godlessness that, that they've come. So um, you'll also see this in verse uh, 25. Look down there where it says, they exchanged the truth of, about God for a lie. So it's interesting. So when we read that passage a while ago, I don't know if you noticed all the phrases that kept being repeated. There were several phrases that kept being repeated. One of those that we talked about was God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over, right? And the other one is the exchanges. They exchanged this for that. They exchanged this for that. So remember, I've got um, a little illustration here to help you remember this. And this is kind of what was coming to me and God was sharing with me. So I'm going to give it to you and see what you think. I'm not uh, constructing anything up here tonight. Uh, this is just here for a demonstration or an illustration. Um, these are lovely signs, if you might notice, the signs that we have. And thanks to Ramona back here, she helped uh, me uh, make these signs so that you could have them tonight. So thank you, Ramona. So remember I talked about this passage as being one about the loss of identity, right? So we talked about how to gain our identity but then when you think about losing your identity, what, what is the uh, first step in this downward progression? Because we're starting here at the top of the ladder, and we're going to take a step down, take a step down, take a step down, take a step down. So the first step that I believe that takes place in a person's life or in a culture's uh, mentality is there is a deception that occurs. And so I put on here uh, self-deception, self-deception. So we see this in verses 18 through 20, and then also again in verse 25, that there is an exchange that takes place. 
What are they exchanging? Truth for a lie. Truth for a lie. Uh, Satan's the oldest and best known trick, right? He is the father of what? Lies. His native tongue is to lie. So that's what comes out of him. And so that's what he gets us to do is to follow a lie rather than the truth. And so the beginning of your loss of identity becomes that you make a compromise. You begin to follow lies instead of truth. Isn't that right? And then secondly, I would say that as you follow this exchange, you see that there is also uh, in verse 23 another exchange that takes place. And it says that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. So what's that all about? So rather than, rather than worshiping the God in whose image they were created, they begin to worship other created things that are actually lesser than them. And so this, I believe, leads to a Another degradation in the loss of identity, and that is called self-rejection. So it begins with self-deception when you exchange the truth of God for a lie, and now it goes to exchanging the glory of how we were created for something else. So that's where you get self-rejection. So you're rejecting who God has made you to be. And you're taking on a new God. You're taking on a new idol. And you're actually saying, I'm fashioned like this idol because you kind of place God aside. You see, that's the exchange that's taking place here. This exchange was exchanged truth for a lie. This exchange here says that, that I am not made in God's image, that I can be like and uh, worship other created things. And so there's that degradation, that going down. Um, each time God giving them over, God giving them over. I want you to notice too, before we get too far away from verse 21, that it says that their thinking, at least in the NIV says, their thinking became what? Futile. And their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, it's really, I, I think our greatest battle is the battle of our mind. Would you agree with me? More than anything else. I mean, it, it, it is about heart. Uh, it is about emotions. It is about things that circumstances, uh, trials of life, all those sort of things. But really, our greatest battle is the battle of the mind. Because he who controls the mind controls the, the body, right? And so Satan is trying to attack our way of thinking. And, and that is so important for us to understand. We have got to have a renewed mind. We have got to be on top of our thoughts our processes that we're going through. Because, you know, it's really not what God thinks about you that matters. Does that disturb you a little bit that I said that? It doesn't really matter what God thinks about you. You know what matters? It's what you think about what God thinks of you. See the difference? Because we can get so messed up in our thinking about what God thinks of us that we immediately take ourselves out of the picture. We're no longer thinking like God thinks. We're no longer saying what God says. We're no longer seeing ourselves like God sees us. And we begin thinking differently about his word. Why are we thinking differently? We've rejected him. We've rejected what he has said, who he said we are, and what we are to be about. So you see this downward progression in the loss of identity. It doesn't stop there. I think another... Uh, degradation is this one. It's called self-condemnation. So here there was an exchange of a truth for a lie. Here there was an exchange of the immortal glory that we were created in God's image for mortal things. And now this one, you'll see in the text that as God continues to give this culture or this person over to their futile thinking, that there's another exchange that takes place. Look at verse 26. It says, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. You know what lust is? Best definition I've ever heard. You've got to write it down. Lust is simply defined as an ever-increasing desire for an ever-decreasing pleasure. Think about it. 
anything that you want or lust after, anything that becomes an addiction, okay? You can name them all off. You can go there quicker than I can enumerate them for you, but you think about every addiction. You think about every lust. It's an ever-increasing desire for an ever-decreasing pleasure. So what do you got to do to keep it going, to keep the addiction going? What do you got to do? You got to continue to enlarge it. You got to continue to feed it. It's a monster. It's ravenous, right? It wants more and more and more. A little is not enough. It wants you to go further. It wants you to go deeper. It wants more of you. And it's always a downward, downward thing. It's a decreasing pleasure and it spirals out of control. So God says, because of these lusts, you, he said, even their women exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. So you know what the first sign of a culture going belly up is? It's when women do this, right? And notice he mentioned women first before men. So when you see that happening, yeah, God is giving that culture over to their own desires. It is a crazy exchange, but it's brought about by this now something taking place called self-condemnation. That they're, they're, they're condemning themselves by their own acts, because they were created in God's image, right? And, and the truth of God that's clearly made known, they rejected that, they suppressed that, and now all they can do is just heap up guilt and shame. And what, what happens when that shame sits there? It doesn't bring about any good fruit, does it? Yes, bitterness, all kinds of evil things, which I think he enumerates those so very well here. But basically, I think it gets to this point here at the bottom where I would call self-abandonment. So you see the loss of identity starts off with self-deception. Then it goes to self-rejection. And then it plays itself out as self-condemnation. I'm no longer worthy. Uh, I'm no longer valued. I have nothing to offer. And now, out of despair, I abandon myself to just go all out. I'm all in on every kind of sin, every kind of unimaginable thing here. Look at verse 28 again. Furthermore, to cap it all off, Paul says, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. You see, it was there. It, it was theirs for the taking. They had an opportunity, but they didn't think it a worthwhile <laughs> venture. They lost out on a big gamble, didn't they? They made a wrong gamble. So what does God do? Verse 28. Gave them over to a depraved mind. So you see again how important it is, our, our mind and what we think and, and the loss of our identity, the loss of this truth and who God says we are will lead a person to total depravity. And in that depravity, they will abandon all things that are good, all things that they know to be true, I mean, it's kind of unimaginable, isn't it? But a dog will return to their own vomit. A, a pig, once clean, will <laughs> go into the mire again. And it's almost like it's somebody else that's driving that. It's like they're not even present or uh, involved, but they are at the control of another, uh, a control of the evil one. And so verse 32 says it one more time, although they know God's righteous decrees. How many times have you heard that in this section? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> although they know God's righteous decrees, that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do them, but they also approve of those who practice them. So now they're going to not only do it, but they're going to approve it. They're going to, you know, misery loves company. Evil loves other types of evil um, and so, yes, that is the giving over of a culture to their own sinful desires. So it ought to uh, really sink into us tonight that we need to guard our minds. Isn't that right? Proverbs 4, verse 23 says to guard our minds because everything flows out of it. Our heart flows out of it. Our actions flow out of it. So it's so, so important to guard your mind. So I hope that I haven't taken you too long down this path about identity and the loss of identity I just wanted to throw another piece on there for you from this light of Romans chapter 1. To me, when, I, when it all came together, I was like, yes, yes, I see that. Uh, do y'all 
see these things? Is this true? It's not only true in life, but you see it also in the passage. Any comments about this downward progression? Okay. Sure. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, it's probably right here at the top. Uh, it'd be very close to this exchange of the truth of God for a lie. And now, uh, you can, it's like Satan said to Eve, right? And, and eating of this fruit, you'll become like God. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. Ah, good. So, so, yeah. True. Somebody else had a hand up over here. Here. Yeah. You know, I think of that passage, Second Peter, where he talks about God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So I don't think God ever breaks from that. I think it, even up until a very dying breath, his will is for all men to come to him. Uh, will he judge sin? Will he judge people? Will he judge cultures? Will he judge nations? You bet. Uh, it says in, in the Old Testament that God's judgments come upon the earth so that the nations will learn what? Righteousness. So God's always teaching. Uh, question is, who's listening? But I, d I don't think God necessarily gives up on the possibility of someone being saved. Just as, you know, Jimmy pointed out, uh, this, even the, the thief um, on the cross, you know, was very near death uh, at the end of his life, and yet God chose to, to save him. Um, so what I'd like to do is kind of flip this around. Good job, Ramona. She made these signs double-sided. So now we're going to talk about, you know, our identity in Christ, right? So um, instead of losing our identity, gaining identity. And so instead of self-deception, we're going to follow the truth. Uh, I am who God says I am. Just like it says up there, aligning with who God says I am. Instead of self-rejection, we have I am enough. Jimmy's subject for last week. Uh, great subject on I am enough in Christ. I don't have to reject myself because of who I have been created in. Uh, instead of self-condemnation, I am forgiven, right? I don't have to condemn myself. I don't have to let shame and guilt wear me down because I have been given a gift of forgiveness, of redemption. And then finally, instead of self-abandonment, we have I am a new creation. So I like that. I like that list a whole lot better, don't you? Yeah. So, <clears throat> as we're going through this series, um, we want to talk about who God says we are. We want to make sure that our identity lines up with, our understanding of our identity lines up with who God says we are. So tonight, I just want to talk to you briefly about I am chosen. Uh, we kind of touched on it just a little bit a couple of weeks ago, but I want us to, to hit that one again uh, as well tonight. So if you would turn in your Bibles, um, well, before we go to First Peter, let's, uh, just a second, I want to talk about that, being chosen. Um, you know, I think all of us can relate to, to the preciousness of being chosen, uh, how that made us feel, uh, how that made us feel about ourselves, and what we were able to accomplish whenever we were chosen. But I think all of us in here, too, have also experienced rejection, haven't we? How many of you have been rejected? You know how that feels. You know how, uh, how that makes you look at yourself, how you define yourself. It could have been uh, on, on a field uh, where teams were being selected, maybe in the neighborhood or maybe on a sporting field or at school, and you know what it's like to be rejected by your peers. But what's it like to be rejected by your family? Maybe a brother or a sister, maybe even a father or a mother, maybe a mother that even you know, dislikes the fact that you were born. 
and you feel this deep sense of rejection, you feel this deep sense of abandonment, that goes deep, doesn't it? Abandonment and rejection goes deep into our souls, and it goes deep into our life, and it's so hard to work our way out of that. Um, I want you to know that God chose us. God chose us. He chose you. And so if you, you know, write a t-shirt, write it on your mirror, write it in your car, wherever, but just write out those words, I am chosen. And God's always been choosing since even before the creation of the world. He chose Jesus to be the lamb uh, that would come and give his life as a sacrifice. He chose Noah to build a boat. Uh, he chose Abram to be the father of, uh, of, of the nations. He chose Moses uh, to lead his people out of Egypt. He chose Israel as his special possession. He chose a young shepherd boy uh, to bring down a giant and to become a king. God chose Jesus, his chosen one. God chose Saul to be a witness, a missionary to the Gentiles. And God chose us in the church. God chose the foolish things, the weak things, the lowly things, the despised things, the things that are not to shame the wise, to shame the strong, to shame the things that are. That's in uh, 1 Corinthians 27 and 28. Aren't you glad God doesn't choose like we do? Because God's choice is certain, whereas we can be really ambivalent with our choices, can't we? We might choose one thing today and another thing the next day or another thing next year. God's not like that. God's choice is certain. God's choice is also unconditional. It, it, it's not based upon our merits. It's not based upon our performance. It's unconditionally given. I mean, when we're looking to choose something, we're going to evaluate it. We're going to judge it. We're going to study it. We're going to figure out if it's going to let us down or not or if they're going to let us down or not. I mean, it's really conditional. God's choice is not like that. God's choice is for his pleasure. God chooses according to his pleasure, not for what he can get out of it. God's not in this because he needs something from us. You get that? God doesn't need us in that way that we need him. He's not served by human hands. He doesn't need anything from us, but it's his pleasure that he chooses us. It's not based on an exchange because we have nothing to offer him in terms of if you're going to make it an equal kind of exchange. It's not an equal exchange, okay? There's, he's got it all. Um, God's choice is redemptive. God's choice is redemptive. Um, he changes us. He perfects us. It's not about us being good enough or us measuring up in some way, but his choice is going to have a redemptive aspect to that. I see that in Scripture. So we're going to look at two passages real quick. Uh, the first one's in Deuteronomy. So go to Deuteronomy back in the beginning of your Bible uh, in verse uh, chapter 7, verses 6 through 9. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, chapter 7. And let's look at verses 6 through 9. And this was really God's heart for his people Israel. And it talks about how God chose them as his treasured possession. Beautiful passage. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 uh, through 8. Or 9, I guess. 6 through 9. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you or choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. So the Lord set his affection upon Israel. He chose them, not because they were anything. They were the fewest of all peoples. They were the least of all peoples. But God did it for his pleasure. 
God did it for his purpose, and he chose Israel to be his special possession. It's this idea of, of God's sanctifying work in and through them to be his people. It's the same way for us in the church. If you go to Ephesians now in the New Testament, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, and this is a passage you'll often hear quoted at weddings, uh, talking about how husbands ought to love their wives. Look at verse 25, 26, 27. Look at what Jesus is doing, because this is really what it's about. It's about what Jesus is doing in the church. Husbands ought to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Not because she was already holy, right? So there's, here's that sanctifying work, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Wow. Jesus did, did all of that, huh? Where is that church? <laughs> I'm looking at that church. What are you talking about? Isn't that awesome? It's not based on, on what you are able to do, but on what he is doing through you. Amen? He is making us holy, blameless, spotless, without wrinkle, so that we might be this radiant bride. You are the radiant bride uh, of Christ. That's good news. That's good news, that it is dependent upon him and not upon us. So now let's go to our, our text for tonight in 1 Peter chapter 2. And I believe I'm going to run out of time a little bit, but that's all right. Um, 1 Peter chapter 2. This, like uh, the book of Romans, was uh, written to primarily a, a Gentile audience, okay? And um, Peter actually was like a co-missionary. Uh, he and Paul crossed paths many times. They shared workers together. Uh, in fact, Peter often followed in some of the places where Paul established churches, some of the same towns uh, Peter went to. And he's writing to these Christians scattered throughout Asia and these different places where the Apostle Paul has already planted churches and already ministered. And he's writing to these Gentile Christians. It's obvious when you read First and Second Peter, there's some huge things happening in their life, right? They're like going through major persecution. Uh, they are suffering because of the name of Christ. And it's not easy for them to retain their identity in Christ because of all the pressures that are coming against them. But I really think that perhaps that's what uh, he's trying to establish here in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, is, is that our identity is uniquely wrapped up in who Christ is and who Christ has made us to be. Um, so as we, as we look in chapter 2, uh, he begins in verse 1, telling the, these new Gentile Christians to rid themselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So he wants for them to desire the word of God. And notice in verse 4, as you come to him, him who? Jesus. As you come to Jesus, they're coming to him um, because they have, they have come to understand that Jesus is everything. And they are willing to lay their lives on the line because they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that, 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 that Christ is Lord and that they have life, but they only have life in him. And they're not willing to compromise that. They're not willing to give up on that. Um, I'm just going to share with you a story real quick from Africa about this point, about suffering under, up under persecution, because I think it's a good, good point, and we'll just pick it up there on the next time that I get to, to speak. But um, in um, Burkina Faso, where Suzanne and I served for over 10 years with our family, um, we've had different experiences of persecution uh, come against the church movement that we were a part of over there. Uh, that God was raising up uh, just beneath our feet. Uh, it was truly an indigenous movement that, uh, of, of churches planting churches. And so when the first missionaries went over in 2002, they each planted a church in the year of 2004. And then when people from neighboring villages heard about what was going on in those villages and that Jesus was being preached, they got excited. They said, hey, we want to hear this more about Jesus. Would you come over and teach us? And the missionary said, oh, that's great, but no, I can't teach you. I'm sorry. 
And they were like, what? You can't teach us? And they're like, sorry, can't do that. Well, why not? Well, well, this guy right here, he can do it. And so they would point to one of the new converts in the, those four villages and then began working with him because he said, well, I'll go, and I'll go over there and tell them the good news. So the missionaries would come back, jump on their bicycles, and away they'd go, riding down these little paths uh, with these guys. And they'd go to the next village, and they'd set up a church there. And then guess what? Yeah, there would be another village that would hear about it. And they'd say, well, come plant a church in our village. So by the time Susanna and I got there, four years after the church movement began in 2008, there were over 30 churches and it kept doubling every few months uh, by the time uh, that we had been there four years. By 2012, the gospel was being preached in 100 villages, 100 villages. It was that viral. It was that organic. Just a beautiful story about what God did. Well, persecution came about primarily in those early days from uh, tribal leaders. So we were working with a particular tribe that was animistic. They were farmers. They were people of the earth. They spent all their time outdoors building houses made of earth, working with the earth to grow enough food so that they could survive and feed their children. In fact, the number one thing on their list whenever we went and surveyed uh, back in 2007 was their prayer was that they would just have enough food to give their kids so that their kids wouldn't have to go hungry like they've gone hungry. Can you imagine that being your number one concern? <laughs> and we've got so many concerns <laughs> but the the tribe tribal um, mentality and religion there is animism which believes that there is a creator god but he's afar off he's not near and so god that created the world has left the spirits of the world uh, in control and so you've got to somehow make contact with these spirits and then you've got to learn how to manipulate the spirits to work in your behalf and that's what animism does okay and so there are people and objects that have power. And some of those people that have power, of course, are the witch doctors because they're the ones that are actually talking to, this, to the big spirits and they're talking to the ancestors through all the traditional magic and so forth, black magic if you want to call it that. Um, and so they have an incredible amount of power uh, over people, control over people, and you can go to them for all sorts of things, not only to do things for blessing but also to throw a curse on somebody if you're mad at somebody or you want to take revenge on somebody you go to the witch doctor and you give him some sacrifices and he'll make something bad happen so all of these things are taking place in this culture so whenever christians come along and they're like hey i'm not buying into that i believe in a god that not only created this world but a god who entered into this world through jesus christ that's suddenly radically very different from what they're believing from what they're practicing and it's so freeing to them it's so liberating for them that they are willing to encounter great persecution uh, against these tribal leaders and against the population as a whole. Uh, there was a, a village not far from our uh, mission center uh, a couple of years ago that actually after we were forced to leave because of terrorism, at that point we were not out of the country totally, but we were on our, we were being forced farther and farther out, more and more restricted. And I got a uh, phone call one day on WhatsApp from one of our Christian leaders over there, and he said, hey, there, there's a great persecution that's broken out in this village. And I was like, really? Tell me about it. And he started telling me about it, and I was like, yeah, okay, that sounds good. He's like, what? I said, I, I'm, I'm totally comfortable with this. I, I, I just know this is going to turn out for good. This is going to be a good thing. God's going to win here, and it's going to be clearly seen that Jesus is more powerful than all the the gods of animism and all their black magic and so forth. And so they just started to ride this thing out. And sure enough, the, the church that was in that village was actually a young church. It was primarily young people, young leaders. Uh, these two young guys that we had discipled and taught to minister there, they were doing a fantastic job, but it was primarily 20s and under. None of the parents in this village were willing to 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 make that jump to become a Christian because they were so afraid of what other people would do to them, what other people would say to them. They were very resistant, but the children started to accept the ways of Christ and they became believers and, and it was a good thing. It was something that they welcomed, something that they enjoyed. But then when the church got ready to build something more permanent because they were meeting under trees over there, uh, they had to go to the, the village chief and ask permission to build a, you know, a hangar, which would be like a metal shed that they might 
worship under there because it gets really hot over there. And so if you're not under the shade, 120 degrees heat, 11 degrees north of the equator, I'm talking about some really horrific heat. So being underneath something is really important. So they just wanted to do that. Village chief, when he got wind of that, he's like, you know, I've never wanted you guys to be here anyway. Uh, he said, I, I, I don't like you, and I certainly don't want you building a church building in our village. And so he began to reap um, all kinds of uh, persecution against them, uh, so much so that he had the parents uh, beating the children whenever they would go to worship. Can you imagine that? And later they came in and completely destroyed the place where they were worshiping under a tree. And they kept attacking and kept attacking. The, the preacher had to take his flock and actually go to his house. He was attacked at his house. Uh, his goods were stolen. They were dispersed. And again, the kids were beaten. And all the while this persecution is going on, guess what the church is doing? Growing, growing, growing. <laughs> and I'm sitting back here just listening, hearing these reports. And I'm going, yeah, go God, yeah. You know, it wasn't really pleasant for them going through the experience, but I, we could see the bigger picture of what was occurring here. And there was a great harvest that was happening. One more little piece of this story that I'll tell you about before I let you go tonight. Uh, one of the fathers who was really, really adamant against these kids uh, to continue worshiping God in that village, he began to like really beat his kids hard. And um, they would go off into the bushes and hide in order to pray and to seek God and meditate with him. Well, the father kind of got wind of it, that mm, something's going on here. These kids are, where did they go for an hour or so? You know, they're, they're up to no good. So he got the older brother. These were the two younger brothers. He got the oldest brother to follow them. So the dad, can you imagine this? The dad telling his oldest son, hey, I know your little brothers are following this religion over here, following the gospel. He said, we need to put a stop to it. He said, I want you to follow them. Find out where they're hiding in the bushes, where they're praying, and you beat them. And then you come back and tell me about it. And so that was what the father told him. So the few days pass by. These younger, brother, younger sons go out in the bush. They find their little spot, and they're there praying. And then the older brother follows them, finds out where they are. And guess what happens? He begins listening. <laughs> he doesn't disrupt them. And it happens again on another day and another day. And by the third day, he kind of like falls out of the bushes to the great surprise of his younger brothers and uh, begins to explain what is going on. But he was like, you know, I can't do this. I want to know more about this Jesus. I want to know what it is that you believe. And that son also becomes a Christian. And so that's what we saw happening in this uh, village where there was just intense, intense persecution against these Christians. It just kept flourishing and kept growing and kept growing and growing. And so God got all the glory. And that church continues to thrive and multiply uh, on a weekly basis. It's a strong church. And you know what? Those kids know in their hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord. And there ain't nothing going to stop them now. I mean, <laughs> he done messed up big time by putting a challenge on them because they 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 endured the challenge. They persevered in their faith, and they grew in their character and in their hope. And now nothing can unroot Jesus from their hearts. And so that's, a, that's what we see happening also in, in the book of First and Second Peter as well, that that's what's going on in the big picture in Asia and all these places where Paul went to preach among the Gentiles. There's a great persecution that's breaking out against the church during that time. You're talking about 25 years or so after uh, the ascension of Christ up into heaven. So we're about 25 years or 30 years into the New Testament church history, very early. This great persecution, though, is bringing a great harvest, a great reward. So persecution is not always a bad thing. And we've learned tonight, too, that from our study of Romans, that wrath from God is not always a bad thing either. Sometimes it's the lessons. It's what God needs to do in order to, to get us back closer to him. Thank you so much for your attention tonight and for staying with me. I hope this has been a blessing to you. I really enjoy getting into the Word, and I was hoping to get through uh, our study in Peter, but we'll just pick that back up next time if that's okay with you. Would you pray with me? Father God, we're so thankful for the opportunity to be here tonight and just to dive into your Word. It's always rich. It always has much uh, to show us and to teach us. And God, we pray that you are pleased uh, with what we have talked about tonight and what you have shown us. We want to thank you, Father God, for your Word and continue to enlighten our hearts. Help us to understand 
the unique identity that we have in Christ and how it's also easy to lose that identity when we begin to make faulty exchanges. And so help us not to go down that path of exchanging truth for a lie or exchanging the, the beautiful, glorious image that we have been created in for other images. God, just help us to stand against the tide of culture, against the wickedness of the day that so easily prevails us and our children, and help us to just recommit uh, to being your people, to being your chosen. Uh, thank you, God, for this church. Thank you for the fellowship of the believers that exist here. Thank you for the unity and the joy that we share in following you. Uh, we're so thankful. Go with us now. And uh, we pray also for blessings over Nashville and the tornado that happened there earlier this week, the loss of property, the loss of lives. We pray, God, that you'd help that community to rally together and to come together under your name and to do good for one another, to be patient and to rebuild and strengthen and encourage one another. Bless them, Father God, as they put things back together again. And may they all seek you, even as we do here. And we'll pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all very much. You're dismissed.